Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. In Mark chapter 6, we're going to be uh, seeing a little shift in the passage for just a moment. And that shift comes because uh, Mark is doing something in his book that's pretty important. Thus far, he's been talking a lot about the miracles of Jesus. So in the last chapter, if you remember, he, that was the passage with the man who had the horde of demons, the army of demons inside of him. And Jesus freed that man from captivity. And then there was a little girl who had passed away and Jesus raised her to life. And there was a woman with a 12-year bleeding that doctors could not heal And uh, Jesus healed her, uh, just touching the fringe of his garment. So Jesus is doing these amazing things. And the question comes up as you're reading through the the story of Jesus and Mark, why would anyone want to kill this man? Why would you want to kill Jesus? And so Mark is, in this chapter, dealing a little bit with that question about why in the world people would want Jesus dead. And uh, so we're going to have that as a little bit of the background on what we're doing. But I also want to point out that this is a timely passage, I think, for what we're going to be doing over the next two weeks. Uh, because uh, in next week, particularly when we talk about the Palm Sunday, we're going to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus and the things that led up to that. And this passage is helping to explain to us why. Why, when Jesus is performing all these miracles, why, when Jesus comes in and proclaims peace to God's people and to the world, why, on a human level, would they want to kill Jesus? Now, we see uh, in places like Acts, that the apostles eventually got it. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge because Jesus had come to die for our sins. But on a human level, with people walking around and seeing face, Jesus face to face and seeing the wonderful things he did, why? Why would they want to kill him? So it, we're going to look at Matt, uh, in Mark chapter 6. And so if you're willing and able, in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 to 29 of Mark. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about many villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. 
So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. As grisly as this is, this is God's word. And he's told it to us because he loves us and he wants us to understand it. Let's pray and ask him to bless us. Now, this is a hard passage to read. It's hard to read about John the Baptist and his untimely death. It's hard to read about the world opposing Jesus. It's hard to see these things. But it's all true. It's all real. It all really happened. And things like this still happen in the world. And so we pray today as we come into this passage, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us, that you would show us not just the evils of the world, but the glories of your kingdom. Would you bless us? And would you be with us, we pray, as we open this up. And Lord, I pray for me. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm probably more like the people of Nazareth than I am like the Savior. And so I pray that you would be pleased to use my words to talk to people about one as glorious as Jesus. Bless us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I do think this passage is important for us as American Christians because I... uh, I hear many people who feel like the cultural landscape has changed so much over the past, really even the past five years, it feels like, or the past decade. And uh, I talk to a lot of people who not only are disturbed, but discouraged. And so I think this passage is, is pretty important for us to think about and how we as God's people, as a, as a church, interact with the culture around us. And uh, I think that we can see in this passage that there's uh, certainly some parallels that, that we may feel 
But I think part of the reason that we feel so disturbed and discouraged by this is because our focus is sometimes on what I'm going to call the coming-of-age story that many of us grew up with. Uh, there's a, uh, when I was growing up, there was kind of this coming-of-age story where you as a Christian living in the United States, you, you may have sowed your wild oats as a kid, but as you got older, you, you began to become more mature. You stopped doing all those childish things. You put them out of your system, and you started taking your place in society as a respectable member of society. And, and some of that meant you got married, you had kids, you became part of a church, but it was just part of the, the uh, cultural coming-of-age story that I grew up with, and maybe many of you grew up with that as well. And I can remember the first time I, uh, as, as I think back on my life, that I, thought, I think, yeah, I was completely shaped by that cultural coming-of-age story. I was in the fifth grade. I was invited by a friend to go to a spend-the-night party to his house with some other friends. And uh, that was the first time I ever saw a rated R movie, was at his house without my parent knowing. And uh, so after we watched the movie, we went upstairs and we were listening to our music, you know, Air Supply and good old 80s standards like that. And then probably around 10.30 or 11 o'clock, he said, let's just go outside. So we went outside, walked to one of the roads that was behind his neighborhood, and there were some hubcaps that uh, he had somehow gotten hold of. And uh, he thought it would be really fun for us to roll hubcaps in front of cars that were driving down this little narrow road at night. And the thing that popped into my mind and what I said out loud was, I don't think we should do that because I am a Christian. And then he said, I'm a Christian too. And I said, let's do it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just part of that kind of coming of age thing. It's like everybody, everybody was a Christian. Everybody called themselves. Now, for me, it was kind of the moralistic side of things. That's the way I understood you know, kind of the coming of age story. But for him, it was, it was just kind of your identity. And I think the, the thing that is hard for us is the coming-of-age story has changed in our culture in the past 10, 15, 20 years. We still have a coming-of-age story, but the coming-of-age stories, instead of taking on the shackles of responsibility and religion, uh, our coming-of-age story is that as you get older, you throw off the shackles, uh, any kind of shackles, and you live life on your own terms. And so when we are kind of wrestling with this as American Christians, we're struggling because the cultural story, the coming-of-age story, has changed right underneath our feet, and the expectations have changed. But I'm going to suggest to you that both of those cultural coming-of-age stories are a bit deficient. And we see parallels to that in this story, I think, with the Jews in Nazareth. When Jesus shows up, they probably are more the rules-oriented type of, like, you've got to take on these responsibilities and things. And when Jesus comes in and says, repent, it's kind of like, who are you talking to? Because we're already living the life we're supposed to live. And then there's Herodias in the household of Herod. And for her, she wanted to throw off the shackles of John the Baptist and preaching and religion. And so that was also a, a, a cultural story for her. It's like, I get to do what I want to do. And so I think this passage really does have a lot to say to us. So what Jesus does in this passage, he, he goes to people who thought they had it, but they didn't have him and they didn't want him. Right? I'm good enough. And then John also goes to people who hated the story of the gospel and the coming of the kingdom. And so what can we learn from this? Well, one is this, is uh, the hard heart is concealed to us. And uh, we'll start with kind of a, an idea that we're going to develop in just as we think about this. And that is that Jesus pursued people in love, even as those people pursued Jesus in hatred. Jesus pursued people who wanted nothing to do with him. So um, 
not any, it's true for all of us, is not only were we not looking for him, but we resist him when he comes to us. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus went to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And in verse 3, they took offense at him and his message. Now, as you read through the passages that led up to this, what were they really taking offense at? Because this is the same Jesus. Jesus is objectively the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, our creator in the flesh, who had come to rescue us and redeem us from our sins. But this message fell flat, as Jesus was proclaiming it, in Nazareth and in Herod's household. In fact, their hardness of heart was so intense, so deep, and so determined that it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And in chapter 6, verse 5, it says he could do no mighty work there. Now, that causes people some consternation. What does that mean? Does Jesus' work depend on our faith, kind of like believing in Tinkerbell? You know, she can't do our stuff unless you believe in Tinkerbell. That's not it at all. One commentator explained that the miracles were intended to validate his claims about the redemptive, that the redemptive kingdom of God was near. But they wouldn't listen to the message no matter how many miracles he performed. So he couldn't do any there to accomplish the purpose of the miracles, which is to show the redemptive kingdom of God coming into the world. Um, another one said uh, that, that it's possible that Jesus could do no miracles there because nobody would bring their sick and their lame and their hurting to Jesus to begin with because they were just like, we don't want anything to do with him. So Why? Why were they so hard-hearted towards him? Why was, why was hometown folks so hostile? Now, it doesn't tell us exactly. It tells us that they took offense at him. And Jesus explains by saying a prophet is without honor in his hometown. But what does that really mean? And uh, of all people to help me understand what might be going on in this passage, it's, uh, it's Bono with you too. Uh, we're in the 80s now. For like every, song, every reference is going to be an 80s reference. I'm just kidding. It's not gonna... uh, I saw an interview with Bono years ago. I think it was on Oprah. Um, I didn't watch Oprah because Bono was on it. And uh, she was talking about the fact, I think you, if you've heard of U2, the 80s band, they made a lot of money. And they have houses all over the world. And Bono has houses, mansions, villas, things all over the world. But back in Ireland, where he's from, he just has a small, modest house and a small, modest car. And so Oprah was asking him about his, you know, why back in your hometown do you, have, you, know, do you live just like everybody else? And so with his Irish accent, which I'm not going to do because it will be really offensive. Um, uh, He said, well, in the United States, if you see somebody living in a big house up on a hill, driving a nice car because of the American dream, you will look at that and say, yeah, someday that's going to be me. He said, in Ireland, if you see somebody with a big house and and a nice car driving around, you say, yeah, someday I'm going to get that guy. It's just a completely different mindset there. And so it's almost like there's this cultural resentment for anybody who stands out and has more than you have. And, you know, as you listen to the questions here, that, that's a possibility. The, the questions they're asking here about Jesus is, you know, even when they say, is, is not his mother Mary? Is he not the son of Mary? Uh, most commentaries recognize that as a slight, as a disparaging comment about Jesus because in that culture, you would reference somebody, a man, particularly by his father, and so a lot of commentators think this is a reference to their, them saying Jesus was born illegitimately in some way. So everything, the questions are not meant to get information. They're used to invalidate his claims and who he is. Now, this is important because 
This is the same Jesus we've been reading about up to this point. He healed lepers. He embraced lepers. He healed this man's daughter. He brought her back to life. He, he uh, has performed miracle after miracle. He's forgiven sins. And uh, about this Jesus that we've seen up until this point, John Owen wrote this. He said, the saints delight in Christ. He is their joy, their crown, their rejoicing, their life, their food, their health, their strength, desire, righteousness, salvation, their blessedness. Without him, they have nothing. In him, they shall find all things. So this is the Jesus, who is the love of his people's life, who shows up in Nazareth, and they reject him. And there's no reasonable reason for them to do this. There's no reason. What they said about Jesus was not really about Jesus. It was about them. Have you ever heard the phrase when somebody says, hurting people hurt people? Have you ever heard that? And what they mean is a person who has internal pain and angst and frustration and self-loathing and hatred, they lash out at other people. And so when people do that, it's not about the person they're attacking. It's about them. And this is what's going on in Nazareth. And they couldn't see their disposition. So their hard hearts were concealed, not just from the world, but from themselves. He's the problem. It's him. Look at all these questions. We can ask all these questions that are not meant to find answers, but are meant to invalidate him. Now, Herodias is a little bit different. Uh, she's a little bit more forward in that. Uh, but her reasons are also probably hidden to her. And she probably thinks she has a right to do what she did to John the Baptist. But at the same time, it's, it's also about her. It's not about John because people followed John in droves. Her husband recognized him as a holy and righteous man. But Herod, according to Josephus, a second century historian, Josephus said that um, Herod arrested John originally because of uh, the fear of insurrection, him bringing an insurrection, a mob to take over because... And, and so him saying, you have this man's wife, you're not supposed to do that. They thought that might incite the crowd. So he got John out of here to shut him up. That wasn't enough for Herodias. And if you know anything about the Herod family, uh, they would have made all the tabloids. They would have been kings of social media in our day. But she felt like what she most wanted was threatened. And she became angry, not at, just at the message, but the messenger. It wasn't just threatening her marriage it was threatening her power, her prestige, her money, all the things that she wanted in life, and this guy's threatening it. He needs to die. And so as, John is, as Jesus is proclaiming the truth in Nazareth, and as John the Baptist is proclaiming the truth about Herod, um, they didn't want to hear that because the truth hurts. I've heard, uh, I've heard I read recently, somebody said, said, the truth will set you free. But first, it makes you miserable. I had a friend uh, years ago, and uh, he, he, was a, he was a minister, uh, but he carried along, around a lot of ugly baggage. So he was one of those ministers that was mean. And he would say, he, would just, he was trying to be edgy, and he would say mean things to people and try to like, you know, push them into uh, believing the gospel in some ways. And he drove a lot of people away, and there were a lot of people who were still his friends. And one of his good friends, they were driving in a car one day, and uh, this fellow said something to the driver, and, and it was just edgy and mean and kind of bitter. 
And his friend said, and his friend was also a pastor, he said, hey, I got to tell you something. I love you, but you have a problem. It is hard to be around you sometimes because of this. And so he just told him. And this pastor, this is a pastor, he's sitting in the seat beside him, and he just started weeping because he couldn't see himself. He thought he was being edgy and funny and that people liked that part of him, but he didn't realize that people couldn't stand to be around him, and he drove people away. And that began a, a huge turning point in his life. But before the truth set him free, the truth made him miserable. And this is what's going on in this passage. Um, and listen, as you're, as you're thinking about yourself, and you look at yourself, when you have that guilt of conscience, and you think, maybe Jesus couldn't save somebody like me, well, that's the truth impacting your conscience and producing guilt. But that doesn't disqualify you. Listen to this. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, There is no such thing as being too great a sinner to be saved. The number of your sins does not come into the matter at all. The character of your sins does not matter one scrap. There is no difference in the sight of God between the murderer and the most self-righteous person, none whatsoever. Both are equally lost. But at the same time, in Christ, both can be equally saved and restored and forgiven. So Jesus came to us to give himself for us in order to rescue us. And, you know, as you look at the passage, you and I are more like Nazareth, we're people of Nazareth, we're more like Herod and Herod's family than we are like Jesus. And we all need this. And so as you grow in Christ, and I've seen this in my own life, it's not about growing less in your dependence upon Jesus because now I'm entering into the cultural uh, coming of age story and I'm better than I used to be. But it's entering more and more into dependence upon Christ and saying, he's all I have, he's all I need. And I will have him into the future. I came by grace, I remain by grace, and I will stay because of his grace. That's what holds me. And that, I think, is reflected in this passage as well, because not only do we see the hard heart concealed, but we see the divine heart revealed. Jesus headed into a place he knew was hostile in order to hold forth the good news. So, Mark 6.1, we read, Jesus went away from there, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Okay, so Luke and Matthew and Mark all record trips to, Na to uh, Nazareth for Jesus. But this is apparently the second time that Jesus comes into Na Nazareth. Uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we read that Jesus moved his home base from Nazareth to Capernaum. And he doesn't give us any explanation for why Jesus did that. And apparently, Luke does. So in Luke chapter 4, when uh, Jesus was first starting his public ministry, he entered the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read the passage from Isaiah that we started our service with. And this is the way it reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus says some other things, and that flares up. It triggers the people of Nazareth. They don't like what he said next. So they took Jesus 
to the edge of a cliff and we're going to throw him off and kill him. So when they got to the edge of the cliff, Jesus turned around and walked out in their midst and he left that place. And so here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes back to Nazareth. This is round two. And so he's come back to the people in his hometown to persuade them. And I'm going to tell you, I would have walked off and never come back. And so would you. So freshman year of college, uh, Presbyterian College in uh, Clinton, South Carolina, I was, uh, we went to a freshman orientation event, and it was uh, a concert with Don McLean. Now, bye-bye, Miss American. That guy, that's everybody. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and so he's up, uh, he's in front singing. I didn't go to a lot of concerts. The only concert I went to in high school was Journey. That was a great concert. And, um, and so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, I'm at a concert. That's Don McLean. I know these songs. So he sang Starry, Starry Night. But, he, uh, but it was a freshman event, and everybody's talking and meeting freshmen around them. So everybody's chattering. So he was basically the background music for this. And he got three songs in like three songs in, and he stopped playing, and he said, this is the most rude audience I have ever been around. He said, I am so insulted by the way you're treating me, and he walked off the stage, and that was it, right? That was it, Don McLean. So um, as we come into this, I'm so glad that Don McLean did not have godlike powers because he would have smote us to death right there in the middle of that auditorium. But this is not what Jesus did in uh, Luke chapter 4. He wasn't offended and just walked out on them and said, I'm never coming back here. No, that just wasn't Jesus' day to die. Because he knew, I've got to go to a cross. And it's there that I have to pay for the sins of the people in, answer of, in, in fulfillment of prophecy. I have to die on a tree outside of Jerusalem, not in Nazareth. So he left and he took off. But about a year later, apparently, he came back. Um, R.C. Sproul says this about Jesus. He said, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He's the seeker. We are the ones who are running. So even after they, after they tried to kill him, they mattered to Jesus. And he came back. Let's give this another go. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the divine heart revealed. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and they couldn't stop him. They couldn't deny or dismiss him. All they could do was kill him. And that still would not stop or contain him. It just served to reveal him. People criticized what he was doing, but he still pursued the lost. He healed the sick. He set captives free. And he went to the cross to pay for the sins of all who believe. He conquered death. He paid for sin. He is the victorious hero, and he has come to save all who believe. That is his love and his mercy and his grace to us as people. This is not a coming-of-age story. It's a coming-of-Jesus story, coming into the world to redeem and to save his people. And so for those of you who look at your lives and you wonder, could God forgive someone like me? I mean, I've, I've, I've had opportunity, and I've said no. I've blown it again and again. And I'm still far from God. It has the window of opportunity closed. No. He is a God of second chances and third chances and fifth chances and 117th chances. He is. But probably today. Today would be a good day to say, 
I trust you and I believe you. I see how gracious you really are and I believe you. And to rest upon the finished work of Jesus. And then there's some of us in here a long time ago maybe or maybe recently we believed in Jesus and we find that that was harder than we thought. I failed, I faltered, I've sinned, I've hurt people around me. Uh, does Jesus still love and accept people like me? I, I believe, but I falter so much. Well, listen to this. This is, a, this is from a guy named John Durant. He says, As nothing in believers was so good as to cause Jesus to love them, nothing is so bad as can cause him to withdraw his love again. We haven't had successful coming of age. Nobody's ever had a successful coming of age story. That's not the story. Nathaniel Holmes even as true believers do not make an end of sinning, so God cannot make an end of pardoning. If you're in Christ, he's come to you. He will never leave you, even though you've often wandered from him. It's grace at the beginning, it's grace now, and it will be grace that will get us home. A great picture of that comes from John Newton, the, the writer of... Uh, you know the writer? What do you write? Amazing. Amazing Grace, thank you. I was kind of forgetting, but I didn't want to say that. Um, <laughs> John Newton was raised in a Christian home by a godly mother until the age of seven when she passed away. Uh, and that's when he rejected God. It's kind of in that whole process. Despite this, the Lord preserved him through many dangers in his life. He was at one point kidnapped and enslaved on the coast of West Africa. And uh, upon his rescue, the boat that John was on sailed into, uh, with its disrepair and its sails and its rigging, and it went into a storm. And it was going to sink the ship. And so one night, they were, all these violent waves were crashing against the vessel. Water filled the cabin. And hurrying above, he found just disarray. There's pieces everywhere. And so men are pumping desperately. You know, they got these old-timey pumps that they're pumping through, and pumping to try to get the water out. They took their clothes and cloths, everything they could find, and stuffed them between the beams in their old ship and put boards up and nailed them in place to try to keep the water from rushing in. And at this point, John Newton says he was terrified. He was terrified. He said, I concluded that my sins were too great to be forgiven. I waited with fear and impatience to receive my doom. So he's in the, this ship. It's going to go down. And in all this while, he believes Christianity is true. He just doesn't believe he wants to be a part of it or, want, or that God could forgive him. But he said that soon the news came through the ship that the water was pumped out and they were going to live. And this is what he said about that. He said, I began to pray to think of that Jesus that I had so often derided. I recollected his death, a death for sins not his own, but as I remembered, for the sake of those who should put their trust in him. So on this day, March 21st, which would have been this past week, 1748, he said a day he ever after observed, John realized he needed a savior to intercede for him before God, and he put his faith and trust in Christ. And he never turned back from that. So he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, based on that. So while he's still in the ship, I can't imagine this. While the ship is still in the storm, the, the, hold, the water's out of the hold, he would go and find, he found a Bible on the ship. And every free moment, he would go and thumb through the Bible and read the Bible voraciously. And he never stopped until he passed away. Thomas Watson said this, God shows mercy, not because we deserve mercy, but because he delights in being merciful. So, how do we respond to that? Hard heart concealed, the divine heart revealed, 
Well, this passage also talks about the believing heart transformed. And we see that in chapter 6, verse 7. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And uh, they're preaching the message of repentance, of repentance. Not the, mer- not the message of the Pharisees, not the message of morals, not the message of political power, not the message of religion. They're preaching the message of repentance and turning to God for forgiveness of sins and turning to him. Uh, and, and these men that went out, these were men who had experienced the forgiveness of God. And that's why that's what they're proclaiming is because they've experienced it. When uh, Peter was still a fisherman before he was given the name Peter. He was Simon. He was a fisherman on a boat. Jesus was on the boat. And Jesus tells uh, Peter and the others to throw down their nets into the water after a long day of fishing. They know this is not the time of day. This is not the place to catch fish. But they threw it in. They caught a large catch of fish. And Peter immediately knew, I'm in the presence of this great man. So he fell down on his face and he said, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinner. And that's when Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And at that point, he received grace from God. He understood forgiveness, and so, at least in a small part. Levi, he was one of the, the apostles. He was a uh, tax collector, and he had turned against his people, turned against uh, God, and he was collecting taxes for the enemies and the pagans that were occupying the land of Israel. Jesus came to the tax collector's booth where Matthew was, Levi was, and said, come and follow me. And he did. He received forgiveness. So these men were proclaiming the very thing. They had been transformed by it. And so when Jesus is sending them out, they're thinking, send us anywhere. We will follow you. There is salvation in no one else but in you. We will follow you and do it. We t- whatever it is that you tell us to do. And so they're following Jesus. Now, what's the application here? Well, he sends them out two by two, and they go out, and don't, they don't take a food, money, anything else. So is that the application? So no, that's, I don't think that's the application. Most commentators say properly that was for that time period. Later on, they're carrying around money bags. Because remember, Judas used to take money out of, out of the money bag, right? So clearly, this is for a, this is for a limited time. And you're kind of like, that's fantastic. <laughs> However, uh, we're called to do what they were called to do And that is to explain the grace of God to a culture not knowing how people around us are going to respond to it. So he tells them when they go into a place, uh, if they receive you, stay there for a time, share the gospel message with them, and then leave. If you go into a place, they may not receive you. And so brush the dust off, which is a way of communicating to the people there that you're like the Gentiles. You're, you're, You're not a part of God's people. And so what he's calling us to do is to go into community. Now he calls some of us to go abroad, that's true. But what he's calling us to do is to step into the communities where we live and to go deep and to dig deep and have a big impact there for you. And you know the stories. Some of you, the person who uh, shared the gospel with you was a friend that you'd known for years and you came to faith. Some of you, it was family It was those relationships. It wasn't a preacher. It wasn't an evangelist. It was somebody who was close to you. Now, others of you had people who came into your life for the first time, an evangelist or maybe at a Billy Graham uh, event. But mainly, it's through the relationships. Um, I had a student years ago named Anna. 
And uh, she had a friend that she was really concerned about who didn't know Jesus but was beginning to ask questions. And so she came to me and said, Stephen, can you meet with my friend? Because apparently pastors are the only one who can share the gospel with people, um, which is not true. Sometimes they're the worst. And uh, so she came to me and said, I, I, can you come and talk to my friend? She has all kinds of questions. And I said, I know you well enough. You know the answers to those questions. You know Jesus. You understand the grace of God. You understand the, the cross of Christ. You understand the answers to the questions. You go and talk to your friend. And uh, she panicked. She did not like me for a good five or six days after that. Um, but she, had, she got the sense of, okay, this is my responsibility, and Stephen's not going to go do it, and somebody's got to do it. So she went and talked to her friend, and she came back at our next large meeting like this, and she said, I shared the gospel with my friend, and, she's, and I said, and? And she said, and she's going to start reading her Bible and, coming, uh, and talking about the Bible with me. I said, isn't that fantastic? It was, it was so much more powerful coming from you than it was coming from me, a perfect stranger. I get paid to do that. You can do it for free, right? So, so it is powerful, right? Your voice in the lives of the people who love you, who know you and know you're in Christ, that has power. You don't know how they're going to respond, and that's kind of scary. But we should not be surprised to find that people who believe in Jesus and pattern our lives according to his words and seek to persuade others of who he is and what uh, he has, has accomplished face similar kinds of opposition and trials to that that Jesus faced. G.K. Chesterton said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And I think there's some truth in that. Um, the disciples didn't know going into a place, is this going to be received or not? And we don't often know. But being transformed by the grace of God ourselves, we want to communicate that to people. We want to love the people around us. And as our culture, the cultural coming-of-age story has shifted and changed around us, you know, our, part of what we are called to do as Christians now is to step into our culture with the same old gospel that we believed so long ago when it was kind of like culturally acceptable. To step into this and say, look, I, Jesus loves me. I love Jesus and I love the people around me, or at least I'm seeking to love them the way that Jesus loved broken people like me. Because I was like the people of Nazareth. I was like Herodias and Herod. I was like that, and Jesus came to me. So there's nobody who's beyond the need of the gospel, but there's also nobody who's beyond the reach of the gospel. And when we understand that, we want to step into the lives of people and trust uh, them and that sharing of the gospel to God and say, I want to tell them because I'm concerned for them and I love them. So, uh, we celebrated last week St. Patrick's Day. Uh, some of you probably know more about St. Patrick than I do, but I've read a little bit about him this week. Because, you know, it, it, that's a good thing about social media. Whatever's on the calendar, like, hey, you need to get bombarded with all kinds of information about uh, St. Patrick. So that's what I did. So he was born in the last years of the 4th century A.D. He was a Roman citizen. He was uh, from Great Britain. His grandfather was a, a Catholic priest. Now, in that day, they could actually have kids and be married and those kind of things. So he was allowed to marry and bear children. His father was a devout man. But Patrick said that when in his youth, he was an atheist. He didn't really care about God. But at the age of 16, he was uh, kidnapped and carried off to Ireland, where he was enslaved. 
And his job there was tending sheep. And it was there in the pastures during those six long years of slavery that he began to pray. And this is what he said about that time. He said, There the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief, that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who comforted me as would a father his son. So eventually he made his escape back to Great Britain and was there for some time with his family that didn't recognize him after the six years he'd been in slavery. And slowly over time, God began to call Patrick back to Ireland, to the people who had enslaved him, to the people who had hated him, to the people who had made his life miserable that he wanted so badly to get away from. So he went back to Ireland as a, as a Catholic priest, and uh, he ministered there and preached the gospel to any pagan that would listen and ministered to any Christian who was there, and he pastored and established churches throughout, and he did that for 40 years. Patrick went back to the place, not knowing how he was going to be received, but knowing he had a message of life. Where did he learn that? He learned it from Jesus. Jesus is the one who came into the world knowing he was going to die. Jesus is the one who went into Nazareth a second time. Jesus is the one who has come to us in our lives. It's not a coming of age story. It's a story in which Jesus keeps coming and coming to us and being with us and being established with his people. Let me pray. Yeah, I started with this prayer. I'll say it again, Lord Jesus. I feel so often like I'm more like the people of Nazareth and Herod's household that I am like someone who really has received the grace that is mine in you. And yet your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace covers over all of my sins, takes away all my guilt, and I pray that your grace would empower a transformation even in my own heart, that I would love people the way that you love people, to be willing to go back uh, to people who have hurt me and to love them and speak truth to them. And I pray for all those who are in this room and even people who might be listening um, and watching online, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be the kind of people that would put ourselves at risk for love and to care for other people who may have hurt us, who have said things that have been hurtful about what we believe and about you, our Savior. And I pray that you, Lord, would give us the ability to love as you have loved. We pray for the people that we love who don't know you. Uh, we pray that they would not be like the people of Nazareth, that they would turn away from you and your grace, but we pray instead that you would go back again and again until they come and believe in you. Pour out your spirit upon us, and uh, we pray that you would work through us to bring real change uh, in the relationships around us. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.